Good morning. Our scripture reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 3 through 16. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, a good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and, and of the wine that the king drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age, so that you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that, when the, that they were in better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine and, and were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. This is the word of the Lord. If you don't have your Bibles there yet, go ahead and get them there, because we're going to be uh, diving deep into that passage Cheryl just read for us. This past week, if you didn't know, it was the third Thursday of January, which is actually a pretty significant day in our calendar year for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's Rain Wilson's birthday, uh, which is very important. But even more important than that, a recent study that was put together by City Lab found that the third Thursday of January is the day when the majority of Americans give up on their New Year's resolutions. So congratulations if that was you. You're the majority of Americans. Take heart though, you are not alone. I am right there with you. If I'm being totally honest, I'm really good at making big resolutions, bold resolutions. And at the same time, I'm really bad at following through on them. You can ask my wife, she lives with me. I'm like cold turkey and then like, it's just crazy. Last year I made big, bold resolutions related to my physical health. I'm 35 now, I'm falling apart, life is not great. All of my bad eating habits for years are just catching up to me. And, um, and so I made this big, bold resolution last year that I was gonna get healthy, I was gonna get strong, and I was gonna get fit. Not like college fit, but like 28-year-old fit. Okay, that's like 
close enough to healthy again, I thought it'd be doable. So uh, one of the things I tried last year was the carnivore diet. Anybody ever heard of the carnivore diet? <laughs> it is as crazy as it sounds. Um, literally no veggies, no fruit, no carbs, just meat, baby. I don't know. It's like there's some science behind it. So I tried it. This is the opposite of Daniel's strategy in our text today. Um, I think, though, in order for it to work, what I found is you have to eat, like, good meat. you got to have, like, the steak that's, like, rich in nutrients and the fish. I can't afford steak and fish every day, so I was eating hot dogs every day. <laughs> and I felt absolutely miserable. So this lasted for, like, a week. Um, and then I moved on. Not healthier at all, by the way. Um, worse. Then I tried keeping track of my macros, which is this thing that people do. It's a massive headache. I got an app on my phone. I was looking at the back of every bag, the back of every box, trying to figure out how it all added up to this number I was trying to hit. After a few weeks, I just kind of conveniently forgot about it. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I forgot to do my macros today. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, it's like one meal at Waterman blows it all up. And so Waterman or macros, what would any sane person choose? Um, so that was my year last year. I can only go up from there. The reason I bring that up is because maybe all of you can relate. Maybe some of you can. Some of you are like really great at resolutions. That's awesome for you. But I think health resolutions, physical resolutions are so hard to make because of two things. First of all, we have tons of competing voices around us, and then we have tons of competing desires inside of us. What I mean is, we all have one main desire. Every single one of us have one main desire. Do you know what it is? It's to be happy. All the philosophers agree. Our number one desire as human beings is to be happy. The problem, though, is we're not sure what kind of happiness we want the most. Do we want to eat a burger and fries and be happy now? Or do we want to eat a salad and be happy later? You see, it's competing desires. Do I want to upgrade my cookout tray and make that extra large sweet tea a cookies and cream milkshake for a dollar? Or, and be happy now, or do I want to skip cookout altogether and be happy tomorrow morning? Getting happiness in the long term means giving up happiness in the moment. And so every single day is this testing of our willpower and sacrifice and discipline and hunger pains and on and on and on just to get there. So more often than not, by the third Thursday of every January, we quit. We have a vision of who we want to be, our ideal, healthy self, but the asks seem too difficult, the process seems too hard, and the tests just seem too challenging. What I want to show you today is that if that's true, and I think it is of our physical resolutions, how much truer is it of our spiritual resolutions? I mean, if you think it's hard to lose 20 pounds, which I've found it really is, or maybe gain 20 pounds for those of you guys who live in the gym and you're like, you think that's the answer, um, just wait. You <laughs> just said it is. Wow. Just wait until you start trying to look, talk, and act like Jesus. Like 20 pounds has nothing on that. Talk about competing desires, right? Satisfying the flesh or walking with the spirit. Living for this present world and all of its trappings or setting our hearts and our minds on a world that's to come. Chasing our own fame or living for 
Christ. Getting the approval of people or getting the approval of God, worshiping created things or worshiping the one who created them. We have all of these competing desires. And this is what I think we really struggle with. We have the desire to look and act and talk like Jesus, but we don't have the resolve to make it happen. The asks seem too difficult. The process seems too hard. The tests seem too challenging. But even more than all of that, I think the cost seems too great. Our culture has shifted to the point where sociologists are now saying that we're no longer a post-Christian society, but we have now shifted into an anti-Christian society. And we might not feel that so much in Billy Graham land, we're still in the South, but we're feeling it a little bit more year after year. It's another way of saying that our culture hasn't just outgrown Christianity. It's a way of saying that our culture is actually opposed to Christianity. We have values and beliefs that um, don't just not align with culture. They collide with culture. So much so that it's starting to feel more and more like we are exiles in our own country. So spiritual resolve doesn't just mean choosing the right desires. It means choosing the right desires even when it could cost us everything. That's why this first glimpse into the life of Daniel is so important for you and me today. Because we see a man of resolve. Look back at verse eight. But Daniel resolved, circle that word, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel was a man of spiritual resolve. And that's what I'm gonna talk to you about today. Resolved in exile. How in the world do we stand firm, stay faithful, and not just survive, but thrive as the people of God when it seems like everything is turning against us? Daniel was a man of spiritual resolve. When I say he was a man, I mean he was a boy. He was 16 years old or roughly 16 years old, somewhere between 15 and 18. So this guy is not a seasoned saint. He hasn't had decades in the word. This is his first time away from his home. Like think about when you went to college for the first time, away from his parents, away from his city, away from the temple, away from his God. And yet this 16 year old kid actually had the courage and the resilience and the audacity to walk with God, even when it could have cost him everything. And so this first glimpse into the life of Daniel is a story that is meant to give us hope because it shows us that first of all, it's possible. If a 16-year-old kid can do it, so can you. Even if you're 16 or younger in here. It's also a story that's meant to give us help because it shows us how we might actually follow in his footsteps. And it does this in a couple of ways. And this is what I want to show you today. First, it helps us because it shows us what the specific tests in exile are going to be, what they're going to look like. And then second, it helps us because... It shows us how Daniel was able to pass all of those tests with flying colors. And so it shows us what we should expect as exiles. And then it shows us how to navigate those tests in a way that we come out as pure gold. I remember in high school, one of my math teachers uh, would give us practice tests the week before our actual exams. 
They were incredible. They would have 20 questions or 20 problems on the test, and she would tell us, these are the exact problems that will show up on your test in four days, but the numbers are gonna be different. Exact problems, exact order. And I was terrible at math. Okay, if you don't know my story, I was homeschooled sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. My mom didn't do math. And so we had this like math curriculum and I knew where she kept the answer book. And so every day I just walk into the schoolroom, I grab that answer book off the shelf and I'd copy all my answers. And she'd look at it and be like, yeah, that's right. It matches. And I'm like, you're dang right. It's right. Like I can copy. Great. So I didn't realize that math builds on itself. So I get to high school and I'm like, wait, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. So math was a struggle. Let's just say that. So I would get this practice test and every day at study hall for four days, I'd go to my smart friend, Tom. Tom was an emo kid. He was like all decked out and he was awesome. And I'd be like, all right, Tom, let's do it. And he would walk me through every problem and I would memorize the steps. I didn't understand any of it, but I would memorize the steps. And because of this practice test, I'd ace the test. I got an A in those classes somehow. It's because I knew how to prepare is the point though. Daniel is a book that shows us how to prepare. It's a book that gets us ready for the tests that are to come and then shows us the steps that we can take to navigate those tests in a way that glorifies God and leads to our flourishing. So first, I'm gonna show you the challenges. I'm gonna show you the tests, the problems. And then second, I'm gonna show you how he navigated them. And just a heads up, it's gonna seem long. I'm gonna do my best to keep you engaged. But the last half, the last three things are gonna fly because we're gonna cover them for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. The first half is gonna be the longest part. So if you're thinking, wait, how are we gonna do all of this? I'm just warning you ahead of time, that's where we're going. We will be here for an hour though. Okay, um, first, the first challenge of exile, our enemy is gonna try to capture our imaginations. Look back at verse four. Then the king commanded the chief eunuch to teach the boys, which by the way, just a side note, these boys have become eunuchs, 16 years old. They're the best looking guys, the most handsome. They are the most educated. They're of noble lineage. They are the cream of the crop of Judah and they are made eunuchs, which means they're castrated. That's just a side. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Okay, they're not living their best life now. The king commanded the chief eunuch to teach these new eunuchs the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. Think college, you know, three year, four year, whatever. Daniel did it in three, I know, he's smart. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Again, this is like a three-year college program. The best and the brightest and the wealthiest and the noblest and the most handsome teenage boys in Judah are handpicked by the king and placed in Babylon's college picture like a Harvard for Babylon. Like they're gonna go into this program, they're gonna get trained up and then they're gonna leave this program ready to lead Babylon, which is pretty crazy to think about as exiles. They're about to get an education like no other. The thing about this program though, is that it was much more than just a re-education of their minds. Um, it, it was much more than learning the language and the literature. It was not just a re-education of their minds, it was meant to be a reorientation of their hearts as well. So on top of being presented with a brand new language, they were being presented with a completely new vision of what it meant to live the good life. This is so significant when it comes to exile. They weren't just going to class, they were getting 
the king's food and the king's wine. They were having parties. They were being presented with Babylon's culture as if this is the way to live. I, I just kind of picture a frat house on a college campus. Like that's essentially what they are. They've just been thrown into it. Except it's not Blue Ribbon. It's not Taco Bell every night. They are literally eating and drinking off of the king's table. He's doing everything he can to woo them and to wow them, to capture their imaginations, to stir their hearts after Babylon's way of life. It's really, really significant. This is so fascinating to me because it shows that the Babylonians' main goal wasn't just to control these people's bodies. They could have done that by putting them in chains and cracking a whip. Their goal was to capture their imaginations. They are not throwing them into a dungeon. They're not torturing them. They're not brainwashing them until they cave in. They are trying to woo them with pleasure and luxury and comfort so that they go by choice. I just picture the old Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast. I have young kids, so I've been watching that recently. You haven't seen it in years. It's a good one though. Um, there's this little candle guy who uh, he comes out and like Belle wants to leave. She's a prisoner. She's a new prisoner. And this candle guy comes out and he's singing and dancing and all of the dishes join in. And it's like this incredible Broadway, just like on the spot. And it's amazing. And they're doing everything they possibly can to convince Belle that she's not a prisoner. She's a guest. That's what the song's about. Because they're hoping if they can convince her that she's a guest, then she'll give in to Stockholm Syndrome and fall in love with this hideous beast that kidnapped her and almost killed her dad so that they'll get married and break the spell and everyone will live happily ever after. That's what the movie is. It would never get made today. <laughs> this is essentially what's going on in Babylon. They're pulling out all the stops, trying to convince these 16-year-old boys that they're guests and not prisoners. They're doing everything they possibly can to try to capture their imagination with their way of life, with their vision of pleasure, with their understanding of the world. Because they know that if you wanna motivate anyone, you can't just tell them what to do. If you wanna motivate someone, you've gotta get a hold of their love and their awe and their heart. I could, I could tell you what to do until I'm blue in the face. You're not gonna listen to me. You're gonna do what you want. You're gonna do what you love. You're gonna do whatever has captured your imagination, what looks true to you. That's what it looks like to flourish. You're gonna do that. So that's what they're trying to do with these boys for three years, trying to convince them. Guys, write this down. It's, it's pretty basic. That's what exile is always like. It is a battle of worldviews. It is a battle of visions of what it looks like to thrive and flourish in the world. It's a competition between two different ideas of what it looks like to live life to the fullest. And the genius of Babylon, which represents all of the world system, which we'll talk about more in the coming weeks, but Babylon is not just a city and time and, and, and space. Babylon represents all that is evil in the world. That's why it shows up again in Revelation. It's, it's, it's the capital city of the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age. So it represents the entire world system. The genius of the world system is its ability to colonize the exiles wandering in it. 
so that they don't just look like them, but they buy into their vision for humanity. As an exile, this world system's main goal is to colonize you so that you look just like them and love the exact same things they love and worship the exact same things they worship. We're all about anti-colonialism, which is a good thing. You are being colonized even now by this world system. The culture of hell is trying to invade your heart and your life to make you love what it loves and do what it does. That's what exile is always like. So be on guard, pay attention because everything you do is doing something to you. Everything you watch is painting a picture of what it looks like to flourish. Hollywood is so good at this. It's called soft warfare. You know what I'm talking about? Culture, ideas, music, art. This is what it looks like to have good sex. This is what it looks like to enjoy life and life to the fullest. This is what it looks like to be successful. This is what it looks like to thrive. Shaping you, colonizing you. Everything you read, everything you listen to is trying to capture your imagination. So make sure you're not being colonized by Babylon. Do you see that? Second, our enemy isn't just trying to capture our imaginations. He's trying to compromise our morality. Look back at verse eight. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. In other words, there was something about this food and there was something about the wine that was defiling. And so if Daniel had eaten it and Daniel had drinking it, he would have been compromised deep within his soul. Something would have shifted, something would have changed. This was not a nice or a neutral gesture from the king. It was food that he knew violated the dietary laws that God had laid out for the people of Israel. It was food that he knew if they ate would compromise their souls. And so he's giving them a gift, but no gift is neutral. Nothing is innocent. It's a fish hook gift. It's a nice juicy worm, but underneath that worm is a fish hook. And if they were to bite that, they would have started the process of inward decay. It wasn't pure, it wasn't kosher, so it was off limits. In a lot of ways, it was like the tree in the Garden of Eden. So Babylon comes along just like the serpent did back then, lays out this feast and is like, really? God said you can't have this? You can't eat my food? It's fit for a king. You can't drink my wine? It's the best in the world. It was a small ask but it wasn't a neutral ask and it would have required compromise. Guys, I think this is really important for us because this is something that didn't look like a big deal. I mean, eat the food. You're not in prison. Like just be thankful that the king's being nice to you. Just drink the wine. What's the big deal? But Daniel knew that it was actually a make or break issue and so he couldn't budge. Um, I think, and I'm gonna prove this in a minute, but I think he knew in that moment that if he had compromised, it would have changed the trajectory of his life in exile. Every little decision, every seemingly little decision, 
has massive impacts on the way we live our lives into the future. For example, I'm reading this book right now by James Clear. Anybody read uh, Atomic Habits? It's really good. Greg in the back, my man. I'm pretty sure you recommended it to me. Thank you. Um, it's really fascinating because one of his main points is that it's actually the little decisions in our lives and it's the small things that make the most difference in the long term and actually determine who we become. And he talks about a plane flying out of Los Angeles trying to get to New York City. And he talks about how a study was done that if, if you just shifted that plane three and a half degrees south, you wouldn't even notice it if you were looking at the plane. It would look like the plane didn't move at all. You wouldn't even see it's so massive. You're talking about three and a half feet. It looks like it's going in the exact same direction. But by the time the plane landed, it wouldn't be in New York City. It would be in Washington, D.C. And his point is that it's those little decisions that you don't even notice every single day. That over time, week, month, year after year, accumulate and actually create your life and determine your destiny. And so Daniel, in this moment, it's like not a big deal. It's just some food. It's just some wine. But that compromise would have shifted the trajectory of his life in exile. So he had to stand firm. Guys, Babylon is always trying to get us to believe that little decisions don't make a big difference. And when I say Babylon, I mean our enemy. Again, we're talking about spiritual Babylon. A little compromise over here, a little compromise over there won't hurt you one bit. It won't even be noticeable. It won't register on the scale. It's just food. The reason he's trying to do that is because our enemy knows that if he can get us to compromise in the small things, he can dictate the trajectory of our lives. And so he tries to convince us that obedience is nothing more than legalism. You ever tried to justify not obeying by saying, oh, that's legalistic? Like you feel the spirit do something in your heart and there's a tinge of like, oh, I probably shouldn't do that. But then you quench the Holy Spirit because you don't wanna be like a Pharisee. That's Babylon. He convinces us that a pursuit of holiness is Pharisaism. Like being like a Puritan is almost viewed as an insult. Now the Puritans did some bad stuff. Like they, they weren't perfect. But what the Puritans did do well was they pursued holiness. They fought sin. He tries to convince us that a stand for righteousness is nothing more than self-righteousness. And I remember when I, like, so I got saved when I was 16. I went to a Christian college in Pennsylvania. I was really, really raw. And I remember, I think it was probably my junior year, I got, like, serious. I, I won't go into detail. You know, maybe another day I'll tell this story. But I was, I was staying in my professor's attic for two days. Um, it was a weird assignment, you know, that Christian professors give students. It was like a solitude and whatever. And it was fasting. I didn't know it was fasting. That's another story. So I'm up there starving and I'm mad because I didn't know I was supposed to be fasting. And I'm in this attic and I have my Bible and I just started reading through the New Testament. And I started seeing all of this stuff jumping off the pages at me about sexual morality, about crude humor, about 
all like arrogance and pride and anger and oh man, all of these things and I'm reading bitterness and resentment. And I literally had this moment in that professor's attic where I just started weeping and I'm like, I'm a dead man. I do all of this stuff. And so anyways, I, I leave the attic. I escape actually early. Um, again, another story for another time. Um, and I'm like determined. I'm gonna try to follow this book. Like really follow it. And I mean, one of the big things in, in a dorm and on a soccer team is like humor, you know? And, and I remember like not laughing at some stuff and like not joining in with, I mean, we're all like Christians, crazy stuff. We're like Christians on, and we're just like all this crude sexual humor. And I remember the first time I took a stand and I'm like, I'm not laughing at that. You shouldn't laugh at that either. Man, I got beat up by my Christian brothers. I was a Pharisee. I was legalistic. I was pious. I was better than them. I'm like, I'm just trying to do what the book says. It's Babylon trying to convince us that if you want to be really mature and really godly, don't sweat the small stuff. You've got grace, so you don't need to obey the law anymore. You ever heard that? Guys, this is the exact opposite of what Jesus taught literally the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. This is the exact opposite of what the apostles taught. I promise you, if you go home and read that New Testament, it's gonna blow your mind. And yet what I'm afraid is that many American Christians actually believe this, bought into this lie. So much so that I think we actually take pride in it and wear our compromise almost like a badge of honor. Look how much I've arrived. Look how much I understand grace. Yet Paul would say, wait, you have grace, should you just keep sinning? No, God forbid. And so this badge of honor, we, we, we say things like, man, I know all of the lyrics and I jam out to all of the coolest songs, even the ones that glorify sin and defile my heart. And, and I know right now you're thinking that's such a little thing. That's such a small thing. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's like food and wine at the king's table. But it's doing something to you because everything you do is doing something to you. We say things like, oh, it's just got a cool beat. <laughs> I just dance, you know, I'm not even listening to the lyrics. Okay, whatever. We, we say things like, and this is our badge of honor. I can watch all the nudity I want in any movie or HBO series or whatever. I'm not affected by it. I can, I can have the world present to, to me their vision of sex, their vision of pleasure, and just be like, yeah, I'm numb. I'm so mature. It doesn't do anything to me. All the violence. You know, it's just a good story. Because I, uh, I remember when Fifty Shades of Grey came out several years ago. I'm not just gonna, I'm not gonna beat up on you, don't worry. Like, just be gentle here. My rod is gentle, right? I'm gonna be gentle. But it is a rod. Um... <laughs> I remember when Fifty Shades of Grey came out several years ago and um, I was actually like really surprised at how many Christians were boasting in the fact that they could watch it and not be compromised. It was a badge of honor. Essentially like forget me too, you know? Forget Christ's sexual ethics, forget Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Colossians 3 and all the rest. We have outgrown purity. 
We have outgrown righteousness and holiness. We are on another level now. That's Babylon. That's the enemy. That will change the trajectory of your life and it will lead you to a destination that you never dreamed. There are a lot of other movies I could have said. I mean, I'm not picking on that. I know at least half of you watched it. Again, there's grace, there's no shame. But this is what you need to understand. If you've bought the lie that purity is legalism and that holiness is for Pharisees, if you've bought that lie, you've already been compromised by the enemy. And the end result of compromisation is colonization. Every decision we make is determining the path of our life. So there's no such thing as a small choice. There's no such thing as a neutral gift in exile. Everything that you receive will either direct your heart away from God or toward him. Do you see that? Nod with me if you're with me. All right. You don't have to like me. Just stay with me. Daniel understood this. He knew that the food and wine weren't just a gift. They were a test. And so he resolved not to consume it. So first, enemies trying to capture our imaginations. Second, enemies going to try to compromise us morally. Third, the enemy is going to try to change our identity. The ultimate goal of Babylon's re-education program was to get into the very core of who these boys were transform them from the inside out so that they would live for different goals, live for different gods. And all of that was bound up in their renaming. Look back at the text in verse six. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, This name change might not seem that significant to you, but it is incredibly profound and it sums up what's going on in Judah's exile. Let me explain it for you. It's the fact that their exile was not just a physical exile, but it was actually a spiritual exile. It was a battle, not just between Babylon, the the literal city and Judah, the literal city. It was a battle between the kingdom of hell and the kingdom of heaven, spiritual cities. Yahweh against Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians. El, which is the Hebrew word for God, which we're going to see in a minute, versus Bel, which is Marduk's other name. The seed of Eve against the seed of the serpent. The Messiah against the dragon. That's what this exile is all about. Jerusalem didn't just represent a physical geographical location in time and space. Jerusalem represented the kingdom of heaven on earth. This is where the glory of God dwelt in the temple. And Babylon was the same way, only it represented the kingdom of hell. While this is gonna show up throughout the book, it starts with the names of these four boys. See, all four of these guys had names And um, within their names was the name of God, El or Yahweh. So El, at the end of Daniel's name, uh, literally makes his uh, name mean, um, I submit to El or I serve El, the God above all gods. El is my judge, essentially. Mishael, 
also has God's name embedded in it. You see the L at the end of Mishael, that's God. And it means this is who God is. This is who El is. Hananiah and Azariah, they have this suffix Yah in their name. You know what Yah is short for? Yahweh, God above gods, right? One of their names was Yah has been gracious. The other Yah has helped. So their names pointed to their allegiance to El, to Yahweh, their identity as his people. Babylon had to change that. Mishael has his name changed to Meshach, which means despised and humbled before my God. Hananiah is changed to Shadrach, which means I fear a coup which is one of their gods. Azariah is changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, another one of their gods. Daniel's name is changed to Belteshazzar. Bel is the Semitic name for Marduk. Marduk is the chief god of the Babylonians. And I just wanna, like foreshadowing here, do you know what Bel looked like? a dragon with a forked tongue. Go back to the serpent at Genesis, go to the dragon in Revelation. This is where it gets crazy. This is where you start to see the spiritual warfare and the exile and all its many colors because Bel wasn't just the chief god of the Babylonians. I need to go down a rabbit trail, okay? Stay with me. I had Caleb read it first. He said it made sense. Um, it's gonna get technical and, and, and I need you to lean in, but we're gonna get back to a point and it's gonna blow your mind if you can hang, okay? Bel wasn't just the chief god of the Babylonians. In ancient Ugaritic texts, so like think ancient Canaan, Bel is called Baal, B-A-A-L. You remember that name from your Old Testament? In the regions just north of Israel, he was worshiped as the top God, the God of gods in their pantheon. So places like Tyre, Sidon, Ugarit, worshiped Baal as the king of the gods. Again, you might remember from Israel's history, they loved worshiping Baal, which is one of the main reasons God allowed them to be conquered 100 years before Judah. Now, now get this, this is another crazy thing that's gonna show up later on in Daniel. One of Baal's nicknames was the cloud rider because everyone in ancient Canaan and even in Israel believed that he was the one who controlled the clouds and controlled the rain. And he was the reason that the promised land was flowing with milk and honey. He was the cloud rider. He was the one who provided the good life, which is really fascinating because later on in Daniel, he's gonna call Jesus the cloud rider. I can't wait for that chapter. It's awesome. It's a couple months down the road. Now, listen, you might remember if you've read the book of Kings, that King Ahab married a woman named Jezebel and she was from a family that worshiped Baal. And so when he married her, they built a house of worship for Baal in Israel. They appointed 450 prophets and these prophets just started going around and killing all of the prophets of God, the prophets of El. Again, it's Bel versus El, Baal versus Yahweh. It was one of the darkest times in Israel's history. But this is what I want you to see. And I need you to listen closely because it's gonna get technical again for a minute. It's gonna hurt your head a little bit, but I have it on the screen so you can follow along with me. Not yet. Um, I have to show you this because it's so heavy and it's so vital to what is going on in Daniel's exile. 
and these boys exile. So vital for you and I to understand what's going on in our exile as well. In our spiritual war that we can't even see. Look at this paragraph with me from, from Dr. Michael Heiser, PhD, Hebrew Bible, Semitic languages, teaches ancient history, Hebrew studies, among other things. Look at this. I've, I've, I've put in red some stuff that I really want you to see. Baal was outranked only by El in Canaanite religion. Okay, so remember, Daniel's just gone from El to Bel. However, Baal ran all of El's affairs, which explains why Baal was called king of the gods and most high at Ugarit and other places. In Ugaritic texts, Baal is the Lord of Zaphon, Baal Zaphanu. He's also called a prince, which in Ugaritic is Zabal. Another of Baal's titles is prince or lord of the underworld, Zabal Baal Arts. Now this is what I want you to see. This connection to the realm of the dead dovetails with the themes associated with the serpent figure in Genesis 3. It's no surprise that Zabal Baal becomes Baal Zabul, Beelzebub. Titles associated with Satan in later Jewish literature and the New Testament. Baal or Bel is the great adversary of Genesis 3. Judah's exile was not primarily physical. It was primarily spiritual. It was the same battle that was being waged in Genesis 3. It is the same battle that comes to its climax in Revelation 12. It is the dragon against the lamb, the serpent against the seed of Eve, darkness against light, evil against good, hell against heaven. And by changing these boys' names, Babylon was saying the battle has already been won. You might as well go ahead and surrender. Bell is greater than El. And from now on, Daniel, you will wear his name. One of the greatest challenges in exile is that one of the greatest goals of Babylon is to get us to believe that God has lost the battle. It's over. He's been overtaken. He's been subdued. He's been rendered useless in our secular Babylon. He has been outgrown and set aside and we have replaced him. And so to identify with him, to have any kind of identity in him is an exercise in futility. Any allegiance to him is nothing more than social suicide, cultural suicide. And so what's the point? Give up now. This is what the Babylonians were trying to do with Daniel and his friends. They gave them the names of their pagan gods so that they would have to hear every single day, every time they were called by anyone, your God is dead, your God is dead, he lost, we won, give in, surrender, over and over and over again. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, resistance is futile. Now listen, I know you haven't been given new names, but the God of Babylon is the God of this age. The serpent's still there. Prince of the power of the air. 
He's still trying to do the same thing with you and with me. He's trying to do exactly what he did with those boys back then. Identifying with Jesus in our culture, in this Babylon, is basically like admitting you're a caveman. Like, you don't like science. You don't like reason. You're a superstitious loon. You don't understand progress. You're on the wrong side of history. And if you don't want to lose everything, you need to just go ahead and accept that allegiance to him is cultural suicide. Just change your identification, why don't you? Guys, these are the challenges that every single one of us face in exile. Our enemy wants to capture our imaginations, compromise us morally, and change our identity and our allegiance as a result. So the big question then is how in the world were these boys able to stand firm? 16-year-old boys. Are you kidding? How? How could they demonstrate that kind of faithfulness and that kind of resolve in the face of that kind of opposition? And then how can we do the same thing? Three things I want to show you. Like I said, we're going to fly through them because the next couple of weeks I'm going to expound on them. First, Daniel and his friends were able to keep their resolve because they were ready for the test. They knew it was coming. I'm going to spend more talk, time talking about this again when we get into chapter three. It's important to note right now, though, these boys and their parents knew that exile was coming because they heard the prophets and they believed the prophets. And so as a result, they drenched themselves in the scriptures leading up to the exile. Morning, day, night, they were in the Torah over and over and over again, memorizing the stuff, preparing for the test that was to come. It was like studying for the exam. They were getting ready for it. Again, we're gonna talk more about it in chapter three because it's a great lesson for parents, but this is the truth. And I want you to write this down. You won't possess anything in exile that you don't carry with you from home. So if you wanna be able to fall back on the word of God in exile, you've gotta drench yourself in it when you're at home. If you want to experience and enjoy the presence of God during persecution, you've got to develop the practices, the disciplines that lead to an experience and enjoyment of the presence of God. If you want to be able to sing praise songs in prison, like Paul and Silas did, those songs that gave them the courage and the hope and the joy to get through it, you've actually got to listen to Christian songs and learn them and get them in your heart so that they're there. I read a story several years ago in, in a book called The Insanity of God, which is one of the best books I've ever read, specifically about what God is doing all around the world through the exile and suffering of his people. Um, in this story, there are these two Chinese brothers and they had been in prison for three years. They were released and on their release, they were made leaders in the underground church because they had been in prison and they were just seen as like faithful men. And so this missionary, he's there, he's at this conference and, and everyone is celebrating these men and they run up to him and they are weeping and they're shaking and, and, and they wanna warn everyone that's at this conference. They wanna share their story. This is what they said and I have this quote, I believe. When we were arrested, we barely knew who Jesus was. 
And they're weeping as they say this. We didn't know how to pray. We didn't know the Bible. We didn't know many songs of faith. We have to confess this to you today and beg your forgiveness. For three years in prison, we didn't share our faith with one person. We hid our faith. And yet when we came out of prison, you made us leaders just because we had been put in jail. The truth is we failed Jesus in prison. We weren't resolved. Please listen to us because this is true. And this is what they said. You can only grow in prison what you go into prison with. You can only grow in persecution what you take into it. Guys, we got a little bit more of comfort, right? We're still in America. We're still free. Praise God. We're still at home, even though we're in exile. But harder days are ahead. And you need to start preparing. I was thinking about my twin this past week as I was preparing for this because he has a similar story but on a positive side and I want to share this to encourage you. Um, we're fraternal twins so we really don't look anything alike. He didn't lose his hair as I always say. If I'm being totally honest, he's a lot more attractive than I am, okay? Um, he got the good looks and I guess I got like a personality? I... <laughs> Thanks, God. Um, Anyways, he was going to get his master's in the UK and um, he always had girls sort of chasing him and trying to date him and everything. And he knew that, that going to another country, was just, he was just gonna be bombarded with temptation. Uh, no community, no family, no church, no accountability, no one who even cared how he talked, what he looked like, how he lived, how he acted. So leading up to this trip, and he just prayed and prayed and, and prayed, drenched himself in the word, asked us to pray for him, asked us to check in as much as we could so that he could be ready for the tests that were waiting for him. He knew it was coming. First night there, first year orientation was at the pub because it's the UK, everything's at the pub. Everyone's drinking, everyone's getting a little drunk. And of course, just as he expected, the test came. First night, fish hook. Every gift has a path. Nothing is neutral. Every pleasure is leading you somewhere. You just need to know that fish hook right here. First night. In that moment, there was a battle of competing desires. What do you want in the moment? What do you want the most? What the world says is good and what God says is good. What the flesh is craving, what the spirit is promising competing desires, but he was prepared. It didn't catch him off guard. Drenched in the word, powered up by prayer, walking in the spirit. And so in that moment of competing desires, guess one, guess which one won out? He looked at her and he said, no thanks, I'm a Christian. The trajectory of his life and that one response. For the next two years, gospel conversation after gospel conversation after gospel conversation after gospel conversation because he was the freak who was a Christian and didn't do what everyone else did. He was the only Christian on his campus, but he was ready. He was prepared. I love him for it. 
Daniel and his friends were able to keep their resolve because they were ready for the test. All I can say to you is get ready. Second, they were able to keep their resolve because they were okay with being the minority. Couldn't help but think of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions as I thought about these teenagers, especially the first and second. He said, resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. Resolved second, that whether others do or not, I will. Determination to do what you know is right, what you know is good, what you know is best, even when it means it will make you different. This is what it looks like to fear God and not fear people, by the way. This is what it means to love and care about divine approval and not human approval. This is Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear God only who can touch your soul and your body in hell. So the big question that you and I need to answer today is who do we fear? Whose glory are you living for? Whose opinion matters most? Who do you revere? For Daniel and his friends, it was clear. They didn't care if they were the only ones who took a stand. They didn't care if they were left out. They didn't care if they were peer pressured. They didn't care if they were made fun of or even worse, like beheaded by this crazy King Nebuchadnezzar. They were okay with being a minority because they knew who they served. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Finally, they were able to keep their resolve because they were convinced that God would help them. They didn't know when it would happen. They didn't know what it would look like. They didn't know how it would all go down, but they were convinced that God was with them, that he loved them and that he had their back. We're gonna see an even greater display of this in chapter three, so I'm saving a lot. Oh, I can't wait to expound on this. But resolve in exile is the product of our theology. Theology matters. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Your resolve or your lack of it is the product of what you believe about God. So, if God is in control and you believe that he's ruling and reigning, even when it looks like he's lost, even when it looks like he's been killed by Nietzsche and everything's secular and we've outgrown him, you'll be able to stand firm. If you believe that he's good and that he actually has the power to turn all things into good for you because you love him, then even when there's a threat of really bad things, you'll be able to stand firm. What you really believe about God will come out in exile. I want to close. Like I said, we're going to spend a lot of time on this in the coming weeks, but I want to close because we have to look to Christ. Every single story in this incredible book ultimately points us to the author of the book. And so I just want to close by looking to Christ and then that'll help us prepare to get to the table where we're going to remember him again. How in the world does this story point us to Jesus? How in, this, how in the world does the story of these four teenage boys point to Christ? 
It's the fact that these boys and their resolve in exile are a shadow of the man who was gonna come and his resolve and his exile. They were offered food fit for a king. Jesus in the desert was offered all of the kingdoms of the world. They were offered the luxuries of Babylon. Jesus was offered the worship of the nations. Both were offered a way out of suffering, a way out of potential beheading, a way out of the cross. Both trusted in the Father's provision. Everything that was going on with these boys was part of a cosmic war that had been going on for centuries, but one which Christ came to end once and for all. They were given pagan names to mock God and put his people to shame. 600 years later, that God would show up. He would be given the name above all names and he would put Bell and all of those other rulers to open shame on the cross. Philippians 2 says that's exactly what happened. And now at the sound of his name, Yah, El, the name that he's been given that we don't even know yet that hasn't been uttered, everyone's gonna bow. All things in heaven and all things on earth because he has won. Colossians 2 the old snake, that dragon, that cloud rider or faux cloud rider that everyone loved to worship. He bites the heel, but in the end, his head is crushed. This whole battle that's being waged in Babylon makes us long for Christmas the birth of the seed of David from the line of Judah that Babylon tried to wipe out but couldn't stop. The faithfulness of God that we see in the story of these four boys is nothing but a whisper of what we'll see in Christ on his cross when he destroys evil and sin and Bel and Babylon forever. Amen? So as we think about the resolve of these four boys, we've got to turn our gaze to the man, the king. It's because of his resolve that you and I can stand today and follow in his footsteps, even in the midst of exile. Would you stand? Let's respond in prayer. We'll go to the table together. Father, thank you for all that we've seen of you, of your sovereignty, of your faithfulness, of your provision. I thank you that you've given us everything we need to obey you, to follow you, to love you, even in exile. Help us to do it. Help us to be prepared. Help us to take every decision as one that is cosmic significance. We want you to be honored, God. We want you to use us, to work through us. We pray that you would do all of this.